Hi, welcome to 40 Cray. This is a podcast by a couple of 30-something dudes whose adult lives and responsibilities have not eclipsed their zeal for stupid nerdy shit. Amen. Hi. As always, I'm Tom, Tommy Bones, a.k.a. Bonesaw Miniatures, also known as King Nerd Douche, or whatever it was that we decided was the title from the... I, th- I think it was Emperor Nerd Douche. <laughs> Emperor Nerd Douche from the trivia episode. Uh, and I'm joined by my co-host, Benjamin, LS Demon. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> uh, in this episode, we have a special treat. We are being joined by my lovely wife, mother of my son, <laughs> future mother of my daughter, Amanda, aka Face. <laughs> yes, I'm Face, um, as I'm so affectionately called. <laughs> Amanda might be a little bit more appropriate for people who aren't my husband, but... <laughs> Yes, that just tells you a lot about him, that his nickname for me is Face. Well, so is the origin of that, is it a wrestling thing, Tom? Honestly, I don't know. I think it used to be Love Face, and then just decided to... I feel like you started that. Well, because Love Face is a little too lovey-dovey for my liking. Mm. You know, pet names. They evolve. The origins are lost to time and and mystery. But I feel like a bad wife, because I don't really have a nickname for you. Mm. What do you call him? I'm not going to call you Bones. I call him Tom. So if Bonesaw would be weird, but if Gabrielle calls me Ben, either we're in front of people or I've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it felt awkward using the word Amanda just now. (laughs) Mm. I don't even remember the last time I used your actual name. Well, Amanda, I know we're excited to have you. Tom obviously is excited to have you in his Mm -hmm. life, I hope. (laughs) They stuck with me now. Yeah. (laughs) Two kids in, there's no return receipt. Um, that sounded harsher than I meant it to. <laughs> oh, I'm not doing this alone. <laughs> so, so like, I think the reason we're bringing you on today is because you are, I believe, a Rhodes Scholar, uh, <laughs> BBC-funded academic on literature. Is that uh, correct? Oh, yes, I think you're leaving out quite a few accommodation uh, accolades of mine. But um, yes, I, I am very much the quintessent. I'm the foremost expert on all things literature pulitzer prize winning nobel laureate (laughs) oh yes i was like 12 i don't amanda gorman stuff come on like she's i'm the original amanda so so it sounds like you're saying amanda gorman is garbage (laughs) (laughs) not at all she's actually really amazing and i really just am an english teacher (laughs) amanda Uh, gorman if you're listening we'd love to have you on the show (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would I would actually really be interested to hear her write a poem <laughs> about what you guys do. I don't think it would be super complimentary, so. <laughs> All the more reason why I would enjoy it. I think I had mentioned that Fabius Bile was influenced by Frankenstein, and then that could have, that caught your interest. And then we, we ended up talking about that. I said, you know, why don't we go dive a little bit into that? And, and like Amanda, Frankenstein's like your thing, right? It is probably one of my favorites. So I, I definitely um, lean toward Gothic fiction and Frankenstein. It's always been one of my favorites and I really enjoy teaching it. So it was nice for Tom and I to finally have our interests overlap at least even a little bit. <laughs> so when you were, uh, obviously you, now, now we were joking, but you do have, you are very educated. You have a master's degree, I believe in literature. I have a, a bachelor's degree in literature and English and my master's in education. Wow. Okay. So you know what you're talking about. Why do you hate Warhammer? (laughs) Well, from a literary standpoint, uh, no, I don't hate Warhammer. I think maybe I just don't know a lot about it. Oh, Um, I see. It's not that I'm not interested. It's just that I'm not 
as well versed in it. But, but I do want to explore this a little bit because I know you you love fiction and you love gothic fiction, which I think is is a pretty interesting category. It's pretty parallel to this kind of stuff because it's heavily based in kind of like gothic, the, the universe at least gothic is kind of um, a word, a genre, a theme that's thrown around a lot. So my first question is, like, why gothic fiction? Like, what about that drew you in? And why is that such an interesting topic for you? So that's a good question. And I really don't. Thank know. you. It's good. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I asked a good question, Tom. <laughs> well, it, it's good because it makes me think because I don't know. Um, I've always liked fiction over nonfiction. I know. I know. I'm a teacher. I'm supposed to like nonfiction, but it bores me. Fuck um, nonfiction. <laughs> but the gothic fiction just had something about it i really liked the the memento mori and the references to to death and and all that it's just really interesting to me probably because it was a creepy goth kid back in the day and i was like Ooh, <laughs> fiction not realizing that it's not really that type of gothic but it still got me into it this is a gothic fiction <laughs> in a storm room <laughs> What so what are the other than like the like you mentioned, there's a lot of allusions to death and kind of just a general I don't know if grimness is, is the right word, but like what are the characteristics of gothic fiction that did not uh, define it as a, as a genre? Uh, so there often is like a haunted castle, haunted house, like hauntings play a role, um, which is interesting because there's none of that in Frankenstein. There's usually a damsel in distress, which is the one part that my inner feminist kind of doesn't love so much but really just that mystery and suspense all of that has just always been something that kind of drew me to the genre yeah. I love a good ghost or haunted story <laughs> dude i watched like top 10 ghost shit on youtube breakfast lunch and dinner just to help me <laughs> escape from the real world so i totally agree so it's so it's kind of like gothic fiction is uh you, you mentioned like damsel in distress or, or, you know, maybe maybe the, a modern gothic fiction would be a character in distress. Doesn't have to be a damsel. I like that better. And and there's there's often like supernatural elements, and it's it is like high emotion too, right? Like it's a very there's not stoic Mel characters. Let a melodrama. I, I love a little melodrama. I I was hoping something would come to mind for me that would be melodramatic. Tom, think of something melodramatic. Go. Nope. Okay. Good. <laughs> So, so within that, like, like Frankenstein is one of the seminal, like Gothic horror stories. And it's, it's, I think widely regarded as a absolutely brilliant piece of fiction that <laughs> set a lot of trends and, and broke a lot of molds. Tell us about it. Like what drew it to you? First of all, did I just, I, I completely pulled that out of my ass. Is that a correct, like, is that okay to say that? Did I fuck <laughs> it up? So it's funny because I, it doesn't necessarily fall into too many of the Gothic fiction themes although it is kind of considered one um but it definitely kind of sparked that sci-fi thing there's it's one of the first times we're talking about using electricity and all that technology to do things so i think it is it an interesting story i also love how she was so young when she wrote it i think that was pretty inspiring and i think she just puts a lot of her personal life and things that have happened to her into the book very subtly um but ultimately it's just really impressive that somebody that young wrote something that we're still talking about mm -hmm. 200 years later. And have Robert De Niro play Frankenstein's <laughs> creation in the movie. You got it. Exactly. It's big time. That movie wasn't that good, right? <laughs> I, I, mean, I saw it and I was like, eh, I don't think this is that good a movie. <laughs> I can't remember the actor who played Victor Frankenstein, but he got the melodrama part down. But yeah, not the, not the greatest. Holy shit. I just looked this up on Google. Mary Shelley was 18 when she wrote that? Yes. 
I have wasted my life. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I should have written two Frankenstein's by now. I like how Mando was just like, exactly. And then Tom's like, yeah, you, you piece of shit. <laughs> well, okay, this will be my last episode. Um, <laughs> well, you're going to go pen the great American novel after this. I was thinking jump out a window, but that works too. Well, try the novel first. If it doesn't work, then, you know. I gotta be honest, I think this is our novel, right, Tom? <laughs> this is my legacy. I, I guess this is the modern day novel. Just just like it was the modern Prometheus. Oh, oh that was good, man. That was the, really good. The, the other title of Frankenstein. So do you know a little bit like I know there's a story about like the the setting, not the setting of the story, but like the setting of Mary Shelley's time and in that's that period when she wrote the story. Uh, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Do you remember like like the nuances? It was a pretty cool story, right? So you, the inspiration behind the story? Yeah, because she wrote it like over a summer or something, right? Yeah, so she was away with Percy Shelley and Lord Lord Byron, and they had like a competition to see who could come up with the best ghost story. So she's the only one who finished her story, which is also impressive because Percy Shelley and Lord Byron are also famous authors. Um, so but, but there's no ghosts in it. Mm. There really aren't any ghosts per se, but maybe they use the term ghost loosely there. So um, what it sounds like is she okay. failed. I mean, if you want to call a book that is still celebrated 200 years later, a... <laughs> Technically, she wins sure. by default because no one else submitted anything. That's, That's fair. Good point. That's a good but point. Also, yeah. If she's a failure, then we all should just be jumping out the window. <laughs> That's true. But let's be honest. She really, she really didn't have the greatest life. I mean, she wrote some good things, but her life was wrought with misery and sadness. So, mm. But anyway, back to the original question. Yeah, they the weather was not good they had to stay inside they decided they were going to sit down write a ghost story and she actually finished hers and it turned into frankenstein and i think by then so i know she she went was she married to percy shelley at that point you know i'm not sure if they have to double check if they were married or if he was still married and she was the mistress at that time because she definitely was the other lady for a while which, so, so like, just to set the scene, like, look, we're not, uh, you know, well, I'm not a, a, a literary scholar, but I, I know it, it's worth investigating because I think she, she, he basically was a philanderer. She was way younger than he was. I think they had tried to have a kid together and I believe that the child may have died. And that along with just dealing with a, a person, you know, in, in Percy Shelley, who is probably a little abusive, at least emotionally, Certainly was unavailable, certainly cheated on her a whole bunch, uh, really rough, you know, and, and I think a lot of that pain comes out in this notion of the story, along with like themes of like hubris. Uh, it's, I think it's interesting that all the characters that are trying to create this life, they're all dudes. And, and I wonder, like, is that a comment on the fact that women can create life? Maybe men are like trying probably, to. It's also, it's also probably a commentary on the fact that her mother died after giving birth to her. So her oh, mother died wow. 10 days after giving birth to her due to birth complications. So it's also probably a big influence with that theme. She did go on to lose, I think she had one child survive, but she did lose more than one, I believe, in, their, in her early parenting. And then Percy Shelley's wife killed herself, and there's just a whole bunch of drama. It made a really good soap opera. Also, um, Lord Byron, the other member of the party, what I like about him when he went to college, uh, his like I, don't, I guess RA or whatever wouldn't let him have a dog. 
uh, and then pointed to the rules that specifically said, you know, no dogs allowed on campus. So he got a bear and brought the bear to college because it didn't say anything about bears, it just said dogs. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the background for Frankenstein. Now, next question, you know, obviously, uh, you, know, you mentioned like, look, you don't hate Warhammer. And to be clear, you don't. So if anybody like the, the 20 people, 30 people <laughs> listening to this, Amanda's not a hater. Not but but sci-fi is not really your bag. It's not, which again is funny because Frankenstein helped kind of make it a little bit more mainstream and kind of put sci-fi on the map. And it is probably one of my favorite books. I am still open to things. It is interesting. I played D&D with you guys. And you did watch Stargate Atlantis. So so I guess they're like, Tom, I know one of the characters that you are super fond of, mm-hmm. Fabulous Bill, is obviously based in Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it wasn't immediately apparent because the whole mad scientist uh, trope, you know, has kind of been played to death. But um, when I found out that he was born and raised in Ingolstadt, uh, that kind of made the connection uh, that it was an homage to the original mad scientist. Yep, Ingolstadt is where Victor Frankenstein studied and where he ultimately then created his creation. So, so- even I feel interesting about Warhammer. <laughs> Tom mentioned there was also another character that um, has allusions to Portrait of Dorian Gray or Portrait of Dorian Gray. Yeah. yeah. So, Grim, the, the Primarch of my, my my chosen legion. I'm curious what drew you to that legion. Did you already know? Did you subconsciously? <clears throat> was it me and my influence talking <laughs> all this in literature? Did it subconsciously sink in? Were you actually <laughs> listening all these years? <laughs> it's because they were they were pink and purple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Tom, that's a really interesting point because if you think of all the legions, like gothic horror. Mm-hmm. probably it's like the blood angels and the emperor's children mm-hmm. yeah the the appreciation of beauty uh, art High emotion emotion uh, make awesome metal band names yeah the blood angels and the emperor's children i'm pretty sure they're copyrighted out the wazoo but uh <laughs> they all would the thousand sons night lords well i just opened you up now your next guest has to be like a metal singer or somebody in a metal band and they have mm. to write songs about this yeah so what I would love to do, I'd be really curious. I know, Tom, you're more of a, a Fabius Bile expert than I am. So I think it'd be, I'd love to hear kind of your breakdown and, and Amanda's reaction. But maybe beforehand, like what makes a good character from a literary perspective? <laughs> not, not a character you play with in a, a tabletop miniature game, but, you know, there are a lot of archetypes of like tragic heroes, of, of people that time and again, we come back to as a society. What do you think? What makes a good hero? So a good hero or a good character? Because I think those Ooh, are two yeah. different questions. I think a good character has to either be relatable to the reader or almost on the opposite end, be completely unrelatable to the reader and have some kind of redemption arc at the end where they kind of come back and the re- reader can relate to them a little bit more. Um, when it comes to a hero, are we talking about the classic sense hero um, are we talking like an actual somebody who steps in epic style and saves the day? It's a good point. I think both like, cause I, I can certainly, Tom, I can certainly think of examples of both from, from, you know, the literature and the, the lore that we look at. Mm-hmm. So yeah, do you want to discuss, I guess what makes more sense in the Warhammer realm? Like are there more heroes who step in or are there more like tragic heroes? I mean, I'll, I'll say what I think, and then like, Tom, curious your angle. So specifically, we look at the the sci-fi Warhammer. There's also a fantasy one, and I think in our lore, right, the the community that we follow, which includes the authors, the the fiction of fans, and, and kind of memes, and some of the content that fans create. I really think 
the true characters that make an impact and are again and again brought up and, and impact the universe are tragic heroes that are pretty mm -hmm. classically focused. But I also think to have a vehicle to drive so many stories, because there's, I think there's dozens and dozens of books that this organization has put out at Black Library at this point. Hundreds. There's also there's also hundreds. Yeah, I, well, I said hundreds in a previous podcast, and I got yelled at. I think it was because I said there was a well, hundred Horace Heresy. Just books. in the Horace Heresy, but counting them all, yeah. But I, like right top, I think like the really big like fulcrum character, not fulcrum, but fulcrum, like the ones that are like pillars that all the other stories originate out of, like the Primarchs, like the Emperor, yeah. like like the really big Xenos characters. They're tragic heroes for sure. But then there's yeah. a lot of smaller stories where it's it's more like an action movie kind of character. Who's, who's really there for the ride and, and you as a reader are able to connect with them. So I think it's right. both. So what's interesting about that is with like the tragic heroes, you already, you know that things aren't going to turn out well. So think like Shakespeare tragedies. Um, they generally can get the sympathy of the audience, but they have flaws that are pretty inherent early on that the reader can kind of foreshadow and see, hmm, this is going to be your downfall. And I guess that leads us into Frankenstein a little bit and Victor Frankenstein, because I mean, very early on, they outright tell you things are not going to go well in the opening letters, but you can clearly see his faults and flaws very early on. And you can clearly see that that's leading to his demise. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting and how that might tie into some of the tragic heroes in Warhammer. So Tom, what do you think? Where does Fabius Bile fall in? Is he a tragic hero or is he just a, a normal one? Yeah, Fabius Bile, heavily, heavily influenced by the Greek tragedies. Just, I don't remember exactly, um, but it, it seems like his his own undoing, like his his flaw, like he's the flaws he's trying to correct are causing him to not succeed. Interesting. And and so that a little bit on the character, like Tom, he was originally an apothecary or like a medic, Amanda, yeah. in this Legion of Space Marines. I guess before even going there, how, how familiar are you with the idea of like what a space marine is in the Warhammer universe? I mean, I know the word space and I know the word <laughs> marine. I, I, I can put them together properly. So so we actually went over this in the Gabrielle episode, but like it, basically it's it's like a seven foot tall, genetically engineered superhuman. They refer to themselves as transhuman. They're they're basically living weapons. They're, you know, they have all kinds of extra organs implanted that make them better adapted to fighting. They're incapable of feeling fear. You know, they're they're just living weapons, basically. So I think it's really interesting because it sounds like the description physically of Victor Frankenstein's creation, but the complete opposite emotional and mental outlook of Victor's creation. So I think that's a really interesting parallel. It's it's an interesting point too, because in this the stories, these space marines are also called Astartes. The emperor created them. So they, in many ways, like the emperor could also be seen as a corollary for Frankenstein. The emperor was this uh, ancient, like magical human being who's existed for thousands and thousands of years and is like a scientist and basically said like, hey, I'm going to go retake the galaxy for humankind. So I'm going to create these warriors. So Fabius Bile, he's one of these superhuman creatures. He's a medic as part of, of this, this legion, the emperor's children, so named because they are great and they have the honor of being so close to the emperor, blah, blah, blah. Tom, like, like, I mean, like, what are the, other than that, like, what are the foundational moments like in his life or what else is relevant? Okay. So Fabius Bile was the chief apothecary of the emperor's children legion. So Fulgrim, their primarch was obsessed with uh, the pursuit of perfection uh, in all things. 
not just you know martial prowess, but art and you know everything you do needs to be perfect, right? I guess the turning point for them fighting a battle uh, on an alien planet and the alien race um, that they were fighting against, they were all basically they were the same species, but there were different castes uh, that had different adaptations depending on their role. Um, so workers had like shovel for hands and, and things like that. And it turned out that they were genetically modified to better suit the role they were assigned. Uh, and Fabius Pyle kind of became obsessed with that idea that they were using science to become a more perfect species. And then he kind of thought, well, maybe, uh, maybe the emperor didn't create Astartes to be perfect. And if we're, if I can you know, use some genetic enhancements, uh, I can improve on the emperor's work and make uh, a more perfect soldier. And that kind of consumed him uh, in his early work. Consume is an interesting word choice because that parallels nicely to Victor Frankenstein, who became so obsessed with his creation and trying to make it this perfect child. He actually mentions how it will love him like a parent. Um, he's nurturing <laughs> it. But yeah, he spends so much time in the the lab that his family the whole season goes by it's actually interesting three seasons go by so it's almost like that allusion to pregnancy and nine months <laughs> took him to create this um, painstaking work and the being consumed by it definitely parallels victor frankenstein so that whole legion the emperor's children they experience a downfall at some point because <laughs> their pursuit of perfection in all things, art, music, literature, as well as fighting, draws them down a path where they, they do things to excess. And that attract evil energy uh, without going into too much detail. Basically, they get into debauchery and over time they become corrupted and tainted. And as this is happening, you know, a lot of the various soldiers or brothers in the Legion start to turn to Fabius to make them more perfect. And he does it in ways which are quite shocking to people from outside of the Legion, but slowly over time, the individuals within it become acclimatized too. So for example, one guy gets like a voice enhancement. So he can scream and like blow holes in walls. Like it's so powerful. Mm -hmm. And another person gets additions to their senses that make them smarter or faster or, or you know, more tuned to their environment, but at the cost of giving up some of their sanity as they become more bestial or, or more animal-like. Mm -hmm. And throughout this, you know, you see uh, Fabius, I'll call him that because we're on a first name basis, start to descend into this really all-consuming pursuit of perfection in the way that he creates and, and manipulates the genes and, and coding of, of either his brothers or other test subjects. At some point, I think he actually contracts some kind of illness, which- I was just going to say, this is really reminding me of Hitler. So as you start talking about <laughs> um, I'm really seeing some Hitler parallels here as well. So with Fabius, so the, when the Emperor's Children as a Legion were initially created, I mean, we could go into the Primarchs and everything, but each of the Legions, uh, when the Space Marines went through the process to become Space Marines, they're, they're normal humans that uh, go through enhancements to become. Uh, but depending on their Legion, they use the gene seed of their leader Primarch. When Fulgrim, you know, when they first found him and started creating uh, enough Astartes using his gene seed. They, you know, had small numbers at first, uh, and then there ended up being a blight on their gene seed that wiped out a lot of their numbers. Uh, and it took a while to recover from that. Uh, and then they ended up transporting the remaining uh, stock, I guess, to a base on Mars, and they lost a couple of the transports. So their numbers dwindled even more. Uh, and I think they were only down to like 200 uh, in the entire legion. I mentioned that because that blight, the genetic blight that wiped out so many is, 
I, I believe that's what Fabius Bill still has. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's kind of struggling to uh, find a cure for it uh, with his genetic experiments and so far has been unsuccessful. But what he does is he creates clones of himself when it gets to be too much and he's going to die. And then he transfers his conscience into the new body uh, in order to keep his experiments going without you know, succumbing to it. I'm curious if Ben could go back, though, and talk a little bit about you talked about like they had a downfall. They started to like become evil. I'm curious. Was that like something inside of them that based on like what was done to them or was it kind of a societal influence? It's, it's a little bit of both. And I think, yeah, I think it ties like to what you're talking about in terms of like this decay, which is inherent. Uh, so yeah, they were, they were influenced by the warp or, you know, the, the extra dimension of chaotic energy. Uh, I mean, that that's a whole another episode going into the lore, but. But I, I would say like at, at a high level, like the shortcut is much like mm-hmm. in Faust, you know, there are demons. Let's just put it that way. There are evil entities which prey upon human weakness. So let's say you're somebody who's obsessed with power. Like there might be a demon like watching out for you. That's like, hey, I know you're obsessed with power. Let's make a deal. I'll give you this power. They make it a deal. And in exchange, the, the person gives more than they intend to or slowly becomes corrupted without realizing it. And in the same way, you know, these primarchs, these father figures who are demigods in many cases and lead, you know, this entire army of people who are modeled after them, you know, the, the one who leads the, the legion of Fabius Bile, he's obsessed with pleasure and, and perfection. And that, that germ of that excess enables a weak link in his armor that demons are able to use to get influence over him and say like, Hey, just a little bit more, you know, like just a little bit more, like you could have more power. You could have more perfection. Look at this sensation and little by little, like over time, it's a slow boil until he realizes he's not even what he resembled. And along with that, you know, the, the people who serve him who used to be these like proud devoted servants of humanity turn into these broken mm-hmm. shells. Exactly. So yeah, that's what I was asking because I was curious how much that, alluded to Frankenstein um, and the creation. Whereas inherently the creation wants to be good. He wants to learn, he wants to be friends, he wants to, to love, but the way society treats him kind of changes all that. So I was curious if it was an internal factor or an external factor just to see how related it was to Frankenstein. I, think yeah, I don't that's... think they, yeah, I don't think they initially want to succumb to chaos. It's just an outside corrupting force that they can't resist. So it, it, it kind of sounds similar to what you're talking about. And I think like society is is less of a less of a thing here. I, I certainly think like there's a there's a father relationship. So the emperor as a father figure to these demigods is not very nurturing and, and seems to be kind of oblivious to their emotional <laughs> flaws, which he probably could very easily have supported and avoided all these issues. But from a broader perspective, you know, one of the things you mentioned early on in Gothic horror or Gothic literature, you need a protagonist that the reader can attach to. One of the things we've explored on this show is for many stories, the main character or the protagonist or the narrator can't be one of these figures because they're they're not human anymore. Like if you exist only to fight, like it's hard to identify with your wants or your desires. And really, now some of them, they're pretty successful at that. I want to talk a little bit about Araman in a bit. But I think in this case, I, I do find Fabius Bile a little hard to identify with. Yeah. So one of the differences, well, the obvious differences, I think, between him and, and Victor Frankenstein, he's not horrified by his creations. You know, he he performs all of these horrific experiments and, and modifications. And, you know, he loves his job. You know, he, he's constantly looking for ways to improve on it. <laughs> 
So he doesn't just build it and abandon it and run away from it. And Right, exactly. So, which is interesting. I kind of almost wish with Fabius Bile, I almost wish that it had that happy ending. <laughs> Obviously, if that had happened in Frankenstein, we wouldn't have a book. But it would be <laughs> interesting to know what it would have been like had Victor Frankenstein nurtured his creation. But again, ultimately, that's the entire point of the book. It was not, he was not nurtured. But it just would have been so interesting to kind of see... Although maybe that shows that no matter what would have happened, tempting fate like that and playing God is going to go wrong no matter what you do. So actually, that might be an even more interesting point that even had Victor Frankenstein nurtured his creation, taught it, gave it love, maybe things still would have ended badly. One of the things I think is interesting, I, I reread, uh, well, I listened to uh, an audio version of, of Frankenstein not too long ago. There's that moment when the creation comes to life. And Victor is, is horrified and just like GTFOs. Yeah. Like he doesn't yeah. deal with it. He just fucking leaves. He's like, I'm not <laughs> doing this. And like up until that point, like he's made questionable decisions. Like people are like, hey, this is probably a bad idea. If it works, so what? You know, you're stealing bodies. There's a lot of things that he's doing in the name of this pursuit. But it's only when he succeeds, he's like, oh, shit. Like, I'm a dick. You know what I mean? Right, and like I think, you didn't know what it looked like before you brought it to life. Like you could still see it. You could still see it's this massive, large person made of dead body parts sewn together. Like how did it only click when it became alive? You sewed them together. Right. <laughs> that's, so that's some serious cognitive dissonance then. <laughs> but, but in the same way, it's, it's almost like inc so incremental in some of the stories that, that take place in this universe that by the end, you see people compromising their ethics and compromising what they think is right and wrong in the name of this higher pursuit. And then they look back at some point and like, what have I become? Right. Cause if it's little by little, you might not notice it day to day, but if there's a reckoning and you're like, Oh my God. And so, so actually if I could, I'm, I'm reading now, Tom, I don't know if you, have you read any of the Armin books? I think it's like John French is the author. No. So, so I read the first one recently. So Amanda, other character, Ahriman, different legion, also a space marine, but he's a, uh, a sorcerer. So just, you know, like Harry Potter in a universe <laughs> where, you know, demons can eat your soul instantaneously. Everyone has giant guns. And all that so shit. rated R Harry Potter? It's not even rated R. It's grim. R. It's just so grim and so dark. Yeah. Which, by the way, grim dark was coined to try to describe like this universe, because it's like if you're a common human, you're, you're probably going to have a horrible life eating like recycled human parts and trying to survive. Like that's the kind of worlds you're in. Yeah. But but this character is an incredibly potent. Let's just say a, a sorcerer. Like that's what they call it. But basically, there are some people who have psychic and magical abilities. And I'm, I'm making it super dumbed down. So people listening don't get angry. But what you see is very much a tragic hero like and you know tom i think we've talked about magnus on this show before their primarch their demigod father was consumed by a hunt for knowledge and in so doing became blinded to some of the things that he was doing that were probably questionable and, and ended up being somewhat unfairly labeled as as a, an, a bad guy and his whole legion got punished and in that process, Armin tries to, uh, who's who's the number one guy under this, this demigod, he's the, the main sorcerer of this legion, he tries to work with all of his brothers to create a spell to heal his entire legion. And what happens instead, it heals them by taking away their bodies and making them lifeless suits of armor. And he spends an entire book like dealing with the guilt of that and thinking, I, just, I should just die, I should just give up. But little by little, this idea of hope and this idea, you know what, I can fix it, actually. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, I can fix it. And by the end, he's doing things and compromising his ethics because he believes in his arrogance that he can do it. 
and and that that night and day beginning and end is is like really pronounced i thought that was kind of interesting as a tragic hero too I didn't have really a question in there. I was just kind of excited because I just finished this. But I mean, like, you, you know what I mean? Maybe we could talk a minute about like this, that Frankenstein moment, like as somebody who's analyzed and looked at the text, what does that represent in us? Like that, like when the creature becomes alive, like that's the only time when he realizes like, what have I done? Why is it that we're like that? I mean, from a postpartum anxiety standpoint, I could maybe make a, a an educated guess there. From a literary standpoint, I think it's more like he was just so blinded. So for Victor Frankenstein, he's more blinded with pride. He wants to be famous. He wants to be well-known. He wants to be the one everybody knows about. That's all he cares about. So I think for him in that moment, I think he might've realized like, oh wait, I am probably going to be well-known now, but probably not for something good. So he ran because his tragic flaw is pride. All he cares about is pride. You read through, so the the story opens with opening letters of him on a boat and somebody else is narrating his story. So everything has already happened and he still is talking with such pride, even after everything has happened. Um, Pride is really his guiding focus in all of this. So I analyze it as either he succeeded and realized, hmm, maybe this isn't such a success. This probably isn't going to go well. I don't think people are going to be too happy with what I did. I'm going to save skin and run. <laughs> but the mom in me who had postpartum anxiety can kind of relate to that, which I think is an unintended uh, reaction to the book. But sometimes you see your kid and you're like, what on earth did I do? Or like that moment <laughs> the pregnancy test turns pink and you're like, ooh, that's two lines, isn't it? I knew I wanted this, but... Hmm. Like just that second of realizing like, this is my creation. I now am responsible for this human being is a huge weight. And part of me wants to think that Mary Shelley being the daughter of Mary Wollstonecroft, like queen of feminism, really wanted to point out that women can do this, men can't. I don't know if that's what she was intending, but (laughs) I like to think that maybe there was a little bit of her saying, look, if a man had to do this, there's no way we would survive as a species. So can I suggest another role play? All right. Sure. <laughs> this time, Tom, I'm going to suggest, why don't you be the creation? And Amanda, why don't you be a female Victor Frankenstein? So we can see like, how would a woman do it? Okay. So, so Tom, buzz, Nurturing buzz. Oh, there's the lightning. You're live and action. Fire bad. He has to learn fire is bad. Thank you very much. Just. That's the point. He's he doesn't know fire is bad. He has to learn it. That's also in the movie, not in the book. But anyway, I think the first thing you do as a parent is give love. Oh, sorry, I'm just be role playing, not explaining. Yes, wah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Oh, oh, this is my my baby bone saw. <laughs> I name you bone saw. You are the sweetest little thing. Come here. I'm gonna love you. I'm gonna teach you. And that's it. That's literally all you have to do. I definitely don't want to murder you now. As a parent, you literally have one job, like to love your kid and want the best for them. Like that's, that's literally it. I'm moved. (laughs) (laughs) And seen. Think about it. Everything else you do as a, as a parent, like you're going to screw your kid up at some point, like it's going to happen, but ultimately they need to know that you love them and the decisions you made were the best you could possibly make. And you did it for them. Other than that, you're going to screw your kid up. You just got to hope they don't screw them up too much. 
love your damn kid. It's literally, that's it. That's all. Tom, is this, so you. It, it's no, it's great. But as she's talking about it, is it reminding you of anything else from the 40 K universe? <laughs> love your kids. But it sounds like the emperor, basically. That is a, a theme, wholly the opposite of the 40K universe, where the, uh, the emperor just kind of, he's hes such a neglectful father. But fuck, what was it? I want to say one of the Gilliman book, he meets with the emperor, like his consciousness. They, they have a meeting or something. And the emperor basically validates the idea that the Primarchs and the Astartes are only meant to be weapons and that once the Milky Way is unified under the Imperium, then he has no use for them anymore. So yes, like Amanda, so the Emperor in his infinite wisdom, like he, you know, he's thousands of years old and he has to you know, conquer the stars to retake them for humanity. So she creates among the various creations, eight, uh, well, 20 demigods, like these ultra powerful, they're called Primarchs, each one to command a legion of, of space marines. Using his gene And each of them has, you know, something different and unique, like one is very powerful with with you know magic and, and sorcery one is the one that pursues perfection one is like the quintessential like uniter of people one is they all uh, have a, a characteristic of the emperor horus has his ambition that kind of thing and what ends up happening is his number one son at some point rebels and takes half of these demigods with him and they have a civil war and, and that's what leads to the kind of current status quo and if you look at all of the things that led up to that, a lot of it was these were beings that in some cases like perceived themselves as, as his children, but he didn't really do anything other than use them thinking, well, they're just weapons. I don't have to. And in, in so doing, he kind of absolutely in his hubris <laughs> sowed his own seeds of destruction. So I think there's a, a slight parallel there. So I don't think Victor, although Victor did want a somebody to love him, but again, I don't think people have kids so that they love you. So there's already a kind of a warp sense there. So I can kind of see there's a little bit of a parallel there. It's not, I think where it phrase off is that he never necessarily meant, he definitely was never supposed to be a weapon. There wasn't necessarily evil intentions or just weren't really the good intentions behind it. But I'm so curious as to the background of the people who wrote Warhammer and the relationship they have with their parents. Yeah, they were all lit nerds. Well, all the, the writers uh, who came up with the fluff, the story. So we kind of have players familiar with the fluff in, in Ben and I, and then you, the lit nerd, uh, we're just trying to find a way to come together. And that was, I think, the point of this episode is to sort of get inside their minds a little bit. I was thinking from a psychological aspect, though. That too. You know, I also have that psych degree back there somewhere in <laughs> my brain. Just so curious the relationship between the writers and their fathers. I would love to know like who came up with the central theme of like why Horace, why he rebelled, like who came up with that idea and and like then fleshed it out. And it makes like it makes when you're reading it, it makes perfect sense. Like he's like, I felt neglected, I felt like I was being used. So I just said, well, why shouldn't I be in charge? And I mean, the fact that the emperor, who's this really incalculably smart and experienced individual, didn't foresee that like hey, if I create these things and just try to use them and don't nurture them like they're gonna fuck my shit up it's, it's kind of hard but i mean but again frankenstein incredibly bright and all he saw was the 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 goal at the end of the road not what am i gonna have to do to get there mm -hmm. amanda we've given you a little taste of this what would it take for you to want to dig into this more without one of us having to cattle prod you like what what would you need for this to be more interesting <laughs> Um, it really, I don't think it would take that much. Although I think for me to just read it on my own and then never do anything with it seems a little not, um, I don't know. 
especially if there's other literary aspects. I think I might have off the cuff mentioned that the emperor's children are based on romanticism. Mm. Like British romantic poetry? Yeah. And I know you're a big fan. I'm loving how like the two genres I like of both fiction and poetry somehow seem to come together in this same little... That was totally coincidental. Whatever you... All highly influenced by each other. I mean, Percy (laughs) Shelley was part of romanticism, Mary Shelley, like fiction. So there's definitely that overlap. But it's interesting they overlap here in this game. And the uh, romantic movement uh, sort of gave rise to the decadent movement uh, afterwards. And, you know, that's kind of how the Emperor's Children evolved as well, you know, the, the excess and debauchery. Hey guys, don't forget to mash that like and subscribe button. You're going to space camp. Suck it. This is where we say all of our uh, mottos, so Amanda, if you get anything you want to say, feel free to throw it in here. How do I top space camp? You're going to fabulous Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I'd buy that for a dollar. Love Shack. <laughs> Little place where we can get together. I don't know what this has to do with your your little game, but it's highly entertaining.